Let's all stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And that is the reading of God's word today. You may be seated. Good morning, West Bulls. No, I am not Nathan. I'm Brian Burns is my name, and uh, I'm sure most of you did not know that I'd be speaking here today, and that was intentional. We waited till you guys were trapped in here. The scripture's been read, and you can't get out. And I'll tell you, you always know there's a guest speaker whenever you see how much scripture we use. Like, Nathan usually uses like three verses. I just used half the book. So anyways, I felt like that would give me some time to get going here. But um, I've been going here uh, since I was in high school, and if you don't know me, you probably know my dad, Steve Burns. And I wanted to open today with a story about a trip I went on with my dad. It was uh, actually about seven or eight months ago, and it was me and my dad and my brother Tom and my daughter Ava and then two of my nieces, Olivia and Harper, and we all went on a road trip to Salina, Kansas, which we've done many, many, many times in our lives because that's where both my mom and dad were from. And so this is a common trip that we would, we would uh, take. And every time we go, we always stop in a town called Colby, Kansas, partially because it's about halfway through the trip, partially because it has the only Starbucks within like 100 miles, but mainly because it has this really cool playground. And, you know, we started taking our kids from there this little, and they would always like to get out and play in this playground. And so we kind of just made it this pattern. And in this playground... Um, there's this statue of a uh, silverback gorilla that the kids would climb on. And so through the years, we always have a picture with the kids. And I was going to get some pictures up here because you would see through the years all these different pictures that we would have with the kids around this silverback gorilla. Well, on this particular trip seven or eight months ago, 
it was really cold out and there was snow on the ground and the kids didn't want to go into the playground, not to mention they're all old now. But I still wanted to get a picture with them with this gorilla. And so I said, guys, just stand up next to the gorilla real quick. I'll take a picture and we'll keep going. And so they said, okay, they'd do that. Well, my dad was too cold and he did not want to watch us take this picture. And so he wanted to go back to the car. Well, I was standing on the sidewalk and the kids were up by this, this gorilla statue and I'm taking the picture and behind me is the parking lot. And so I was in front of a car. It was not our car. But my dad had this assumption that because I was standing in front of it, it must be our car. And so he was so confident, he didn't just go check. He went in, opened the passenger door, and started to get in the car. Well, there happened to be a young lady in the passenger seat where, that was in the car. To make it worse, she happened to be nursing a baby. I am not making this up. This is the, the truth, I promise you. And so he opened the car, gets in it, only when she started to say, Sir, sir, can I help you? Did he realize his mistake? At which point he, he looked over and he gruffly apologized, like, oh, sorry, like it's more her fault. Shuts the door and walks over and gets in our car. Now, I had no idea any of this was going on. I'm completely oblivious. I'm sitting there trying to take my picture. And my brother comes over and he grabs me. He's like, we need to leave right now. I was like, okay. So we go and we walk over to the car and on the way he tells me what had just happened. And so I quicken my pace as well. We get in the car and I drive away as quick as I can. I'm looking in the rearview mirror, make sure police aren't after us, you know. And we get on the highway and as we get on the road, I, I looked over at my dad and I said, are you kidding me? Did you seriously get into someone else's car? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, was she really nursing? And he's like, yep. And I was like, Dad, you are kidding me. I said, that is just ridiculous. And I began to shake my head in disgust of my dad. And I look over, and he's shaking his head too. And he looks at me, and he's like, yeah, she really needs to lock the door. (laughs) Now, that is what I call missing the point. And I could probably end right there, and the application would be today would be, if you see my dad coming, lock your door. But... The reason I bring it up is the scripture that Lori just read and that we're going to be going through today is of a time when the disciples most certainly missed the point. And before we dig in, I'm going to go ahead and open us in a word of prayer. Dearly Father, we thank you so much for this time together here. Please get me out of the way, Lord. I pray that your words are spoken, that your Holy Spirit moves throughout this, uh, this whole uh, room right now, and that uh, you convict us of your words and help us to learn what you want us to learn. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this scripture starts off much like others that we see in the Bible, and that's where Jesus is walking and talking with his disciples. And uh, we see in verse 27, he takes the opportunity to try to teach him. In verse 27, it says, he asks them a question. He says, who do people say I am? And we could skip right past that verse and kind of move on to more of the meat of the scripture. But when I read that, it made me stop and think, why did Jesus ask this question? I mean, the cynical part of me is like, who cares what other people are saying? But why did Jesus ask it? Well, first and foremost, I think Jesus does care what other people think and what other people say. But I also think he asked the question in this way because he knew it would elicit a response from his disciples. It would get his disciples talking. Because when you ask a question in the third person, what do other people say? It adds an element of anonymity, doesn't it? 
And if you've ever had to conduct a survey of some kind or a questionnaire and you want a bunch of responses, what do you do? You make it anonymous. Now, you might not like the answers that people give, but if you want a lot of responses, you make it anonymous because people don't have to stand by what they're saying. And so that's kind of what we see here, and we see it works. When Jesus asked the question this way, it says they replied, the disciples replied, and they said that others think that you're a prophet of some kind, maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah. The point is it got him talking, right? And I think it's a, a fair assumption to think that some of the disciples weren't sure exactly who Jesus was in that moment. And by asking the question in a third person, it got them to maybe say some of the things they were thinking in their mind. But whatever it was, it got them talking, and they would be able to push it off on someone else. But then Jesus changes the question from what do other people think and from that point on in Scripture, he gives his disciples three questions. He gives all of us here today three questions that we must continue to ask ourselves in our lives as followers of him. The first question that he asks, and for you studious types, this is on the back of that bulletin. This would be the first blank. It's, who do we say Jesus is? That's the first question today. And the Scripture says in verse 29, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? You see, Jesus changed the question there, didn't he? He changed it from what do other people say, and he makes it much more personal. He strips away that element, that veil of anonymity. That's now gone. Who do you say I am? And whether you're new to church or you've been going to church your entire life, this is a question you must answer in your life from time to time. Who do you say Jesus is? And we see here that uh, Peter is the one that answers. It says, Peter replied. And I thought that was interesting because did you notice whenever he said, that he, when he asked the question, who do others say I am? Did you notice what the scripture said? It says, they replied, meaning the disciples, lots of them. And they gave lots of answers, didn't they? But when he changed the question to who do you say I am, it says, Peter replied. Peter answered, no longer they. And I can imagine this situation, can't you? But they're all walking along and Jesus asks, who do, you, who do others say I, I am? And there's all this, these, this conversation going, these thoughts coming out. And then he says, who do you say I am? And it's silence. No one says a word. We've all been in those meetings, haven't we? Where you're in a group of people and then all of a sudden the per whoever's leading the group asks the group a question and it's silence. And immediately you start, you know, tying your shoe or you're in deep contemplation of what, what you're thinking. The whole time just praying that somebody, anybody will speak up and cut the tension. Well, that's the blessing of Peter. Peter is that guy. Peter's the guy that's bold enough to give an answer and not care what others are going to think of that answer, whether he's right or wrong. And it tells us here that Peter did answer. Peter answered, and it said, he said, you are the Messiah. Now, I know in the scripture that we're going through today, it ends, there, the next verse says that Jesus tell, warns them not to tell anyone. But we see the same story in Matthew, and in Matthew, it gives us a bit more detail. It says that after Peter gives his answer, that Jesus lavishes praise upon him. Listen to this, and they'll put it up on the screen here. In Matthew 16, starting in verse 17, it says, Jesus replied, this is after Peter said, you are the Messiah. Jesus replied, blessed are you, 
Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he tells his disciples not to tell anyone else. And I, and I felt like those few verses in Matthew give us incredible insights on the rest of the scripture that we talk about today. It gives us a lot of understanding of what happened next. Now, I want you guys to think back when you were in school, because I was thinking back when I was in school, and there were times, although they were really rare, where I would raise my hand if the teacher was asking a question and I would give an answer. And then there were times even more rare where I would get that answer right. Well, on those really, really rare times, I have to tell you, when, the, when I'd hear the teacher say, you're correct, Brian, it would be the best feeling in the world. Wouldn't it be? Whenever you get that answer in front of everybody and they say, you're right, it's just this great feeling. Well, here in this story, this response from Jesus was way more than just you are correct. He's telling Peter he gave the perfect answer and that his insight was unworldly, that it was straight from God. Peter had to feel like a million bucks. Peter had to be filled with pride. And I think as the scripture goes on, we see that to be proven out. It says here in verse 31, he, talking about Jesus, he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And I want to stop there for just a minute and point out that last phrase. It says, he spoke plainly about this. And why I think that's important is because time and time again in Scripture, we see that the disciples are completely lost on what Jesus is saying. Don't we? How many times, whenever Jesus is giving parables, do the, the disciples pull him aside afterwards and say, hey, what did that mean? Or even just in, in daily conversation, if he said something, the disciples wouldn't have a clue whether they would address it to Jesus or not. It would tell us that they were confused and not knowing. Even two weeks ago, if you remember when, when Nathan was preaching, um, he talked about a time when they were on a, a boat and Jesus mentioned something, he's teaching them about the fact that they need to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. Do you remember that? And they think that Jesus is mad at them because they don't have enough bread on, on the boat. Even though he had just done a miracle where he turned like, he fed thousands of people with just relatively few uh, loaves of bread. And Jesus is like, how do you keep misunderstanding? The point is, very rarely in Scripture do we see them say they understand what Jesus is saying. And even more rarely do we see a time where it says that they thought he was speaking plainly or clearly. So I think we need to take note of it. And what do we see that he's saying? Jesus is telling them, yes, I'm the Messiah, and now he's telling them what it means to be Messiah. And that brings us to our second question that we have here today, the question that we must ask ourselves from time to time. And that is, if the answer to that first question of who do we say Jesus is, if the answer to that question is our Messiah, then the next question that we must ask is, what do we think that means? What do we think that means? I had uh, my cousin, Josh, his name is Josh, and his three-year-old daughter, her name was Leslie, they came and stayed with us back in July for just a couple nights. 
And I remember one afternoon as we were sitting outside, uh, his daughter, Leslie, had gotten out of the, the pool and um, said she was all done and she wanted to, to be dry. And so Josh said, no problem, go inside into the bathroom, take off your wet swimsuit, and then put something else on and come back out inside and sit with us. And Leslie said, okay, Daddy, and ran inside immediately. And Courtney and I, my wife and I were looking at each other like, wow, that was, she's three years old, that's awesome, she, she gets you, she really, she just did exactly what you said. Well, a few minutes later, Leslie came back outside completely naked. And Josh is looking over and he's like, Leslie, what happened? I see that you took your swimsuit off, but what happened to putting self, something else on? And she looked at her dad completely confused, and she goes, but Daddy, I did put something else on. And she put her hands up in the air. She goes, see, I have soap on my hands. And true to form, she did. She had a bunch of soap on her hands. She had something else on. Well, that's kind of what happened here. Jesus thinks that they answered the question right. They said, you're the Messiah, and he thinks they get it, that they understand him. And so he starts telling them what that means. But we see what happens. As the scripture goes on, it says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I have to think that Peter's boldness here had something to do with the fact that he was filled with pride from the answer, the correct answer he had just gotten from Jesus. Remember, in front of all the disciples, he was just told that Jesus is going to build his church on him. And so filled with that confidence, Peter rebukes Jesus. Now that word rebuke, we see it in the New Testament Uh, several times, but almost always it's associated with a time when they're casting demons out. So by using that word here, it's not just that Peter is trying to convince Jesus that he's wrong. It's not just that, that he wants him to change his mind. He's reprimanding Jesus. He's belittling him. He's telling him, you're way off base here, Jesus. That's not what's going to happen. You see, When Peter told Jesus that he was the Messiah, he had an image of what Messiah meant, and it definitely wasn't what Jesus went on to describe. And it's hard for us here today to really understand, to fully comprehend what that word Messiah meant to first century Jews. I mean, this is a a people that had been ground down by centuries of lost wars, They had put and staked all their hope on a Messiah that was going to bring their nation back to glory. That's all they thought about. So for Peter and his disciples, this word Messiah, it stood for wealth and fame and political power, finally being on top. That's what that word meant to them. It definitely did not mean suffering and rejection and pain, and death, which is what Jesus had just said. That's not what they wanted. And I wonder, are we any different? Are we really any different? When we ask Jesus to be our Messiah, when we ask him to be our Savior, don't we mean we really kind of want our life to go easier at that point? 
Isn't that what we want? I know that that's how it is in my life. When, when, when uh, tragedy hits us, when death hits us, when sickness and all these things happen, don't we get a little bit angry? Don't we begin to question God a little bit? And like I said, I struggle with this as much as anybody. I know when I lost my mom, I was angry. I felt cheated. When I've had bad things happen in my life, it was hard and I would, I would question, what is, what is going on? Why is this happening to me? But isn't that kind of like rebuking Jesus for the suffering that we endure? Isn't, there, isn't that similar to exactly what Peter did here? The thing is, where in Scripture did it ever tell us that our life would be easier, easy? That by following Jesus, we'd be free of rejection and suffering and sickness and pain and death. Where does it say that in Scripture? It doesn't. Yet deep down, don't we all want that when we follow Jesus? More than that, is there a part of us that expects it a little bit? Well, my wife and I, we have three kids. Um, two of them are older and out of the house now. And then we had a, a long gap, 12 years uh, of a gap, and then had another one. And he is now seven. And if you guys out there, we haven't had a seven-year-old in the house for a long time. And if you have not had a seven-year-old in the house, I want to tell you something about seven-year-olds. I'm going to clue you in on something. They're crazy. If you don't have one, if those that have them, they're, they're shaking their head yes right now. I was uh, just maybe a couple weeks ago, I was in a battle with our seven-year-old. His name is Ezekiel. It was time for bed. And I had told him I needed him to go clean up his dishes off the table, pick up the pile of books that he had left on the floor, and go upstairs, brush his teeth, and that I would meet him up there and we'd read a book and go to bed. Well, Ezekiel did not like this plan, even though it was the same, it is the same plan every night. He didn't like it. And so instead he wanted to sit on the couch and watch a movie. And I said, well, buddy, that can't happen tonight because it's a school night, so we're not going to be able to do that. He continued to argue and argue with me, and finally I said, Ezekiel, enough. You need to be obedient. And he looked right at me, and I promise he had no idea in his mind that what he was about ready to say is completely ridiculous. And he said to me, I will be obedient if you tell me to sit on the couch and watch a movie. Well, that kind of sums up how we treat God sometimes, doesn't it? Yes, I believe Jesus is the Messiah, and yes, I will follow him as long as nothing bad happens in my life. And that is just as ridiculous as what Ezekiel said to me. And it's just as ridiculous as this image of Peter rebuking Jesus. And we find that to be true by Jesus rebuking Peter right back. You see, the point here is we can say that Jesus is our Messiah and believe it with all of our heart and yet completely miss the point because we don't know what that means. And that's why it's important to continually go back and ask ourselves, if Jesus is our Messiah, what does that mean? What does that mean? Because Jesus goes on to tell them not only was he going to have to go through the cross and, and pay the penalty for all of us? But then he also had a message for his followers, and that is that there are crosses we must carry. And that brings us to the third question here today. 
And that is, as followers of him, what are the crosses we must carry? It says in verse 34, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. Now there is a lot in that section of verses, isn't there? There's a lot we could go off in there. But today, I just want to look at three, and I know there's more than that in there, but three crosses that Jesus mentions that we must carry as followers of him. The first cross I want to mention is that of self-denial. In verse 34, it says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. So why is Jesus talking to his disciples about self-denial? Well, he just realized that they figured out that he's the Messiah and yet completely missed the point, right? He, what they think by Messiah is that they were going to gain a lot more, that it was going to finally be about them And Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not at all what this means. He wanted to obliterate that that train of thought. And so he told them, that's not what this is about. And I would love to say that the disciples really got it from here on out and understood that it wasn't about them, that the self-denial thing really took uh, took, uh, heart for them. But we will find in the coming weeks as we're going through Mark, there's going to be a time coming up where uh, Jesus walks in on the disciples arguing amongst themselves who's the greatest. And it'd be so easy to look at the disciples and be like, what is wrong with you guys? Or to judge them in some way. But I totally get it. Don't you? I mean, we live in a society from the time we're born all the way up that we are supposed to be looking out for ourselves. That we are the most important thing. That no one else is going to do it. So you better take care of yourself. Whether it be in your job, in your life, in whatever endeavor you, you look at, that you are looking out for you. We're no different than what these guys were at the time. And when, you're, and when you're right in front of a difficulty or if you're going through a hard time, it's even more so about yourself. Again, no one else is going to do that. And people can misunderstand Jesus' words here about self-denial. And they can take it to mean that we're not supposed to care for ourselves or we're supposed to hate ourselves or deprive ourselves in some way. But that's not at all what his message is. What Jesus teaches is that self-denial is coming to him and realizing that we have a father that loves us so much that all we care about is loving others. That we have a father that cares for us so unconditionally that all we can do is respond by caring for others. I think of Don and Danette Morgan. I'm not sure if they're here today, but uh, it, many of you know Danette's been um, battling cancer for some time now, and Don's just been right there by her side. And I, I recall a time a few months ago, I was in a meeting with Don and at the end, with a group of people, and at the end of the meeting, we all went around and gave a prayer request. And uh, when it came to Don, he kind of shared some of the things going on with Danette. And when it came around to me, I had mentioned that this coming fall, now in the past, my daughter would be going, to, uh, going off to college and that um, she struggles with anxiety some. And so I just asked them to be praying, you know, for her. 
Well, fast forward weeks and weeks, uh, maybe in a couple months uh, ahead, and Danette is in the midst of intense chemo. And Don is with her every step of the way. They're going through all the doctor's appointments, all the scans, all the things. Any of you that have gone through cancer know the amount of time and energy and thoughts that you're consumed with during that. And I get a call from Don. And Don, uh, I answer, and it's like, hey, Don, how are you? And he's like, hey, I just wanted you to know, I've been praying for Ava, my daughter. And he's like, and um, I'm just wondering how her anxiety is and how she's doing. Just, I've just been praying for her. And it just touched me beyond words. It still does to, to this day. And I think that is a couple that know their father loves them so much that all they can do is love others. They know that their father cares for them so unconditionally that all they can do is respond by caring for others. That is self-denial in action, and it is an awesome thing to see. The second cross I want to talk about here is sharing God's truth. In verse 38, it says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory. So why is Jesus talking about sharing truth here, speaking truth and bringing his truth out to the world? Well, he just told his disciples he knows his time on earth is coming to an end. And he knows also that these disciples and these people that he called over that are following him, they're the ones that are going to have to go share the message. And so he wants them to know that they need to go out and do it. And he's well aware there's going to be times where they're uncomfortable in uncomfortable situations. He knows there's going to be times that are in dangerous situations. And he knows many of them are going to feel ill-prepared, that they're not gifted to go and do this. And he says, go, go anyways. And what I think of whenever I, I, I think of this cross, I think of our missions director who was just up here, John Trovinger. Now, John, for many, many years, like 15, 20, I, I don't even know, 80 years for all I know, he's been leading teams to Juarez, Mexico, to go and build homes and to bring the gospel to these people. And uh, it's, it's just amazing to me that he continues to do this over and over again. And if you've read the news about Juarez in the past, there's been times where it's not the safest place to travel, right? You don't think of Juarez as being the safest place, but it's never stopped John. And knowing John and his wife Carrie personally, there's many times that they have storms going on in their own life, like we all do, yet it has never stopped him from going. And as far as the skill set, sorry, John, um, if you've never gone to Juarez before, there's something totally cool and unique about watching John, a guy that does not speak a lick of Spanish, getting in front of a church full of people that only speak Spanish and give his testimony to them. And them get it. And he even gets his son up there, Zeb, to play guitar. It is such a cool thing. But I think he'd be the first to tell you that maybe he doesn't have all the skill sets to go to a foreign country where he doesn't know the language, right? But he goes anyways. That is called sharing God's truth. That's, that's it in action. That's the cross of sharing God's truth because you're not always going to be ready to do it. The third cross that I want to talk about today is losing our life for God. In verse 35, it says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it, 
but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And this is one of those verses that I imagine had to be a little confusing to all the people standing there, like it would be for us, because it seems contradictory, doesn't it? If you want to save your life, you've got to lose it. So it's kind of a hard thing to understand. So why is Jesus talking about this? Well, he knows that these people he's talking to are no different than you and I, and that is that our culture has taught us and ingrained in us since we were little that we are only worth what we accumulate, the things that we gain in this world, that that is truly what makes our life up. Now, like I said, it's true in every culture. The things may change that bring worth, but it's always things that give worth. I mean, in some cultures, it was the number of kids that you had, right? Some cultures, it's uh, your occupation of how important you are, your political power, uh, the money you have, whatever it might be, the things all change. But remember, Jesus knows this, and he's telling him, you could gain everything. You could gain the whole world, and yet you'll still not have an identity. You still won't truly have a life. And he's not sitting here telling them, I want you to exchange that stuff, and I'm going to give you this instead. No, no, no. He's telling them, come to him and give up everything. Give up your entire identity, your entire life, and you will find your true identity because he knows us better than we know ourselves. He created us, right? He said, come to me, and you will find your identity in me. And I'd be remiss not to tell you on this as we're ending here that this uh, illustration, what came to mind, I started with a story about my dad completely missing the point. And in this case, he was the illustration that came to mind when I thought of losing your identity to Christ. Because many of you guys know my dad was the music director here at West Bowles for many years. And before that, he was the music director at another church for many, many years. His entire uh, adult life, his entire career was dedicated to uh, serving God in the way of music. And anybody that ever worked with him knew that he gave his all. He gave his best, whether it be a, a Sunday rehearsal, uh, it, whether it be a concert, whether it be a Christmas program, whatever it was, he would give his all. And more than that, he was able to get others to give their best and to give their all as well. And uh, whenever you would ever hesitate, if he'd ask you to do something and you would hesitate, he would say, you're not doing it for me, you're doing it for God. And I always bristled with that response because I got it all the time. I must have hesitated a lot because I heard that all the time growing up. You're not doing it for me, you're doing it for God. Well, the fact of the matter is he believed it and he lived it. And COVID kind of forced retirement on my dad here at West Bowles. And it was actually a good thing, honestly, as a blessing, because I can imagine if it didn't come, he probably would have died up here directing or doing a Christmas program. It's just he would never have stopped. And so it was a good thing. But uh, some of the people in the choir wanted to throw him a retirement party, and he absolutely refused to be part of it. And he only relented when they would call this a, a choir reunion. And uh, if you asked him about it, he would, he would say he wasn't being humble. Difficult, most other people would say, but not humble. But the fact of the matter is he said they weren't doing it for me. This wasn't about me at any one point. We, he said, I did it and they did it for God. You see, my dad lost his identity. Or I'm sorry, my dad found his identity by losing it in Christ. And uh, C.S. Lewis says it this way. I thought this is a really cool quote. At the very end of mere Christianity, 
C.S. Lewis is commenting directly on this scripture right here, and it says, the more we let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Because he made us. He invented us. He invented all the different people that you and I were intended to be. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give up myself to his personality, that I first begin to have a real personality of my own. Who is Jesus to you? What do you think that means? And what crosses must you carry? These are three questions that we must continue to go back to and ask as followers of him. And will we miss the point on occasion still? Of course we will. Of course we will miss the point. These are hard questions to answer. The disciples didn't answer these correctly all the time. And I promise you there's going to be times in our lives where we have a hard time answering them as well. But that is the beauty of being in a community like West Bulls. As I was trying to think of the illustrations for the crosses, so many different people in this congregation came to mind. I had so many different people I could have used as the illustrations. And there's something just so cool about that because as we run into these questions that are hard for us to answer, it makes it immeasurably easier when we're able to look around and have illustrations all around us. And for that, I am so grateful to be part of this church. And I'm so grateful that I was able to come up here today and share this message with you. And all of you can be grateful to know that Nathan will be back next week. So... With that, I'm going to ask the praise team to come up, and I'm going to um, pray, and then they'll close us out. So, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. Oh, your word is, is just incredible, Lord, because uh, in it, you give us life. You tell us that these crosses that we carry, they're not, they're not burdens. They're blessings. They bring us closer to you, Lord. And I'm just so thankful for this congregation, these group of people in this room right now that are walking illustrations of your word because it's hard to answer them sometimes, Lord. And we're so thankful for your Holy Spirit moving in us. We continue to pray that we can be the illustrations for others. Thank you so much for your love, for giving us these questions and then in turn answering them. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.